God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. It's not just that he blamed him. It's not just that he felt the full force of the Father's wrath against sin, but he became sin in our place in order that we would not have to. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today we are coming to the last in a series of studies on Matthew's Gospel. And of course it will come as no surprise to you this morning that we are turning to Matthew chapter 28. So if you have your Bible, can you turn with me please to Matthew chapter 28 as we read together verses 1 to 10. If you're visiting with us this morning and don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one there in the pew. And if you turn to page 1549 for the church Bible, page 1549, as we read together Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples, Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. About two years ago, I was invited to a breakfast where the former ambassador to Canada from the United States, the Honorable David Wilkins, was the guest speaker. Now, on that occasion, David told the following story. He was on his way to speak to the Canadian Parliament for the first time, and he was sitting in the back seat of the ambassador's car, and his wife Susan was sitting immediately beside him. And he said, I turned and looked at Susan, and both of us shook our heads, and I said to her, did you ever in your wildest dreams believe that we would find ourselves in a situation like this? And Susan turned to him and said, David, you're not in my wildest dreams. (laughs) That's a wonderful line, and Susan delivered it so well. And of course, she's thinking of her children and her grandchildren and all the fun they can have, and poor David was not even in the picture. 
I suspect on Easter Sunday morning when the disciples got up and began to get into a new day that never in their wildest dreams were they able to imagine what would come to pass in the course of that morning. Remember what had happened over the last 72 hours. Their closest, their dearest, their best friend had been arrested, tried, crucified, was now dead, and had been buried. And the horror of Friday was still very much in their mind. If you have ever lost a friend, a parent, a grandparent, niece, nephew, child, very suddenly to death, it's a terribly sad experience. And it leaves you instantly distraught, wrestling with denial, saying to yourself, how can this possibly be taking place? How can a life end in this way? And that was magnified to infinity because of who Jesus was. And on the previous day, the Saturday, I imagine the ladies and the disciples were asking some deep questions. Not just how can the Roman authorities do this, not just how could they let this happen, but they would then go to a deeper place. And they would eventually, in the course of that Saturday, move to a point of asking themselves, Father, how could you allow this to happen? After who Jesus was, all He had said and done, the impact that He had had on so many lives, the teaching, the miracles, how could you possibly let it end up with this? Surely this was never God's will. And all of those questions, all of the uncertainty, all of the longing hunger for explanation and understanding would have gone through their mind on the Friday evening. I don't suppose they slept too much Friday night and all day Saturday. And on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, whom we presume, and I think with accuracy, Jesus' mother, would go to the tomb to finish the embalming. Most of you will know, of course, that in the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath day begins when dusk arrives on the Friday night and it ends at dusk on the Saturday night. And so they very quickly took down his body, cleaned the body, wrapped it in strips of cloth, and then began covering it with spices to begin the embalming process. They ran out of time, and so we're coming back on the Sunday morning to finish what was started. But things changed, and changed quite dramatically. Look at the passage before us. When they were on their way to the tomb, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The guards clearly were in shock. They likewise were asking, how could this now happen? And Easter Sunday morning is packed with questions 
and uncertainties and hesitancies. Think of the incredible paradox that Easter was. It was paradoxical in this sense. There now was an empty tomb and an empty cross and empty grave clothes. What did this mean? How could this be? Of course, the deeper question from the Saturday was echoing on into that Sunday morning. Father, how could you allow this to happen? A further paradox. For the next four or five minutes, I would like to take you to a place of theological depth that we don't often do on a Sunday morning. The Scripture, on several occasions, uses this term, before the creation of the world. And it then goes on to explain God's eternal decrees. In other words, His plan of redemption. It unfolds for us in great detail how much He loved us. And His initial intent was this. In creating each one of us, His greatest hope is this, that we will come to know Him in all of His fullness and understand the wonder and the love and the grace that He showers upon us. When Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life to the full, that's exactly what He meant. He meant, of course, we should enjoy our childhood growing into those teenage years, loving parents and grandparents, going off to college, finding a job, falling in love, having a family, and watching that cycle repeat itself. And God understands entirely the love and joy and thrill that is ours in each other. That's why we were made, made in His image, able to love. But He went a step further and it was this, that He created us in order that we might come to know Him. And the joy and the love and the thrill that belongs to us in everyday life experiences is manifest wonderfully when we know Him, when He comes to live within our hearts and give us a new soul, and we come to know Him in prayer. We come to feel and sense His presence in His Word, and we draw closer and closer and closer and closer to Him. Do you remember the shorter catechism, the first question, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The Christian life is meant to be enjoyed and enjoyed to the fullest extent. That's why He created us, so we could know Him. But in creating us, he gave us the ability to love. And you cannot mandate love. You cannot order someone to love you. The person has to come of their own volition to a place of love and gratitude and growing in that relationship. And here is where we go deeper. And it's this, that the complicating factor in the gospel message is this. 
in giving us a choice. He has given us the choice to follow Him and know Him or to turn the other way. The Bible teaches us again and again and again that sin is not a small thing, that it is not something, as we said moments ago, to be treated casually or lightly. And sin begins in the heart of each one of us when we get to the point, whether as a child or a teenager or whatever age and stage we're at, when we begin to know the truth and then do what? Begin just to turn away and say, Father, I know you loved me. I know you sent your Son into the world that I might know you and follow you all my days. But quite frankly, I think on this occasion, I'm going to do my own thing. Thank you all the same. And when sin enters into our hearts and minds and soul, it begins to draw us ever so subtly, ever so persuasively, ever so powerfully away from the things of God. There comes between us and Him a distance and a barrier, and as that sin grows, it has an inoculating effect on our minds and on our spirits, and it has within it, within it, the ability to blind us and to convince us that we are better off without Him and that His love is no big deal, and that really we know best. And slowly but surely, sin takes hold and becomes addictive and persuasive, and we end up a long, long way from the cross. It begins in small, selfish ways, and then it manifests itself. And part of my job, sadly, is to pick up the ravages of sin when it enters into a married life. And a couple who once loved each other and promised they would love each other to the end of their days suddenly become cold and distant, and a marriage falls apart, and sin is always at the very heart of it. When there is distance and estrangement between a father and son, daughter and mother, when selfishness turns towards drugs, alcohol, chemical addiction, pornography. It begins to twist and bend and distort that person. How often I've sat with family members, and this is what they will say to me, they are not the person I once knew, because sin has ravished their life and convinced them absolutely and utterly that their life would be much better continuing where they're going until their life comes to nothing and it falls at their feet in ash heaps. That's how serious sin is. And we see it across our world with ethnic cleansing in Rwanda and child sex slavery in Asia, and not so long ago, a holocaust in Europe that led to a worldwide war. That's how serious and despicable and utterly evil sin is. And God, in all His love and grace and holiness and justice, could never and will never pretend it does not exist. 
And the only way he could respond is to do what? To ask his son to come into the world and to take the penalty for our sin on himself. That's the power of the cross. And never in our wildest dreams did we imagine that would take place then. The gospel reminds us again and again that's exactly what happened. And rather than do what? Rather than blame us for our sin, He placed it on His own Son. Some of you may have already heard it said this way, the one who loves us so much makes Calvary possible is also the one who understands the consequence of our sin and determines that Calvary is necessary. Necessary. And when sin entered into our world, it left us as a human race and as individuals estranged from Him, far from Him. And sin will always, when it captures a life, take us to a place so desolate and so awful that we have convinced ourselves we will never be able to break free of it. And here is the amazing thing. We are more willing to live with this sin than to run to the cross and seek redemption because we've been told the lie that we cannot break free. That's all we would ever amount to, and our life is meaningless and amounts to nothing. And the cross says the very opposite. He says, I have made you for myself, and I long that you would come to know me and be changed and transformed and feel my love and and grace. No wonder an earthquake took place Easter Sunday morning when the cataclysmic power of God in all its creativity brought Christ back from the dead. That's the power of the cross, and a hallelujah belongs in there, beloved. Hallelujah is our only response to the power of the cross. And the ladies could not take it in. They couldn't see it. They couldn't, in their wildest dreams, begin to get their head around it. You mean, he's alive? It can't be. John's gospel tells us that Mary was so confused, she confused him for a gardener. Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter still doesn't get it. John looks in and understands immediately. He believes the penny finally drops. And if this morning you are here, and it's been some time since you've been in church, and you've found yourself over the last few months distant from the things of God, far from Him, and this morning you have plucked up enough courage to be here and are saying, Father, I want to begin again. I need the power of Christ in my life I need to deal with the sin that's there. I am fed up living a life that is going nowhere and is lying in ashes at my feet. Father, please forgive me. Allow me to begin again. Some of you this morning are watching on television. 
Some are listening on the internet, others by radio. And you are aware that has been calling you, and He's been drawing you to Himself. And this Easter Sunday morning, begin again with Him. There is hope. There is hope. That's what Easter Sunday was about. Think of all the symbols that we could have for Christianity. A baptismal font, yes, a possible symbol. An empty tomb, of course. An apron that was tied round the waist of Jesus when He bent and washed His disciples' feet. Bread and wine, all legitimate symbols. Perhaps a dove to symbolize the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there is one symbol that stands tall above them all. It's the cross. This past Friday evening, a friend who had flown from Glasgow in Scotland was visiting the U.S. to visit family, and he arrived in Boston. And on Friday night, he was Facebooking, and he said, I've arrived safely. His wife was with him and his two children, and he's looking forward to 10 days of holiday. And he said, as I was looking around the city, I noticed the flags were at half-staff. I couldn't understand what was going on. And I thought, I wonder who's died. And then he remembered. It was Good Friday. He'd been so caught up in crossing the Atlantic, so looking forward to the holidays, that it had at some level slipped his mind, and he'd forgotten. And this morning I am calling you back, please, with all the intensity that I can, that this Easter weekend, remember the power of the cross, what it achieved, and God's redemptive purposes for all of humanity were brought to fruition right there. And it's no wonder on Easter Sunday morning, the angel says to the two ladies at the tomb, do not be afraid. Why? Because when you begin to become serious about your faith, and when you are willing and ready to wrestle with the deep truths of God's redemption, it is not an easy thing. It's not a casual thing. It will push you in a direction where you come face to face with Him. It's unsettling and unnerving, and it should be. It should be. He went to the cross in order in order to do what? To give His life as a ransom for your sin. A hallelujah does belong right there, right there. And understand this, that the Apostle Paul, in summing up the teaching of the New Testament, said this, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. It's not just that he blamed him. 
It's not just that he felt the full force of the Father's wrath against sin, but he became sin in our place in order that we would not have to. That's the glory of Good Friday. That's why it's Good Friday and the wonder of Easter Sunday. And how does the passage end? It ends with the two ladies being told by the angel, go and tell his brothers, he has gone into Galilee ahead of you. He's gone ahead of you. And if this morning you are here and are struggling about what is ahead of you, fearful over a terminal illness of a parent or a grandparent, concerned about surgery to come in the next two or three weeks, worried about unemployment and how you will get by, praying for grandchildren and children, understand this, that having gone to the cross for you, He will not now let you go. He has gone ahead of you. He's waiting for you. And when you get there, He will hold you by the hand and take each step with you. And the ladies going to meet the disciples encountered who? Jesus on the road. And what do they do? Do they look at each other and say, I told you so? I told you? Do they shake him politely by the hand and say, nice to see you? They fall at his feet in worship adoration, praise, they get it. They finally understand that they have been what? Cleansed, redeemed, renewed by Him, not just now, but forever. Forever they get it. Our closing hymn this morning reminds us in powerful terms of the message of the gospel, and it tells us what Lord Jesus meets us, risen from the tomb. Lovingly, He greets us, scatters fear and gloom. Let the church with gladness hymns of triumph sing, for her Lord now liveth. Death has lost its sting. For some this morning, this is the beginning of a new day. Some of you, for the first time in months, have understood the power of the cross, been reminded that there is hope and there is a way forward, and you do not have to live the way you once lived. My final thought to you this morning is this. Leave rejoicing. Leave uplifted. Leave glorifying in the cross. The power of the resurrection has come. He is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the power of the cross this morning. Thank You that we no longer have to run on empty, but we are filled with Your love and Your grace and the knowledge that You died for us and took the pain of our sin. And Father, as we leave this morning, we remember these words. 
the one who loves us so much makes Calvary possible, is also the one who understands the consequence of our sin and determines that Calvary is necessary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To purchase a DVD of today's message, please send a check or money order for $10 to First Presbyterian Church and include today's program number. For more information, visit our website at firstpressgreenville.org. Join us as we celebrate the Scottish heritage of the Presbyterian Church with tartan banners, Scottish songs, and a message from Dr. Richard Gibbons. Kilts and plaids are the dress of the day.